0: It's very easy to use a blood. runner on first base. Hills will be scheduling a press conference. Recent
1: days have demonstrated that Arkansas's battle against coronavirus is anything but over, not even close. The surge in confirmed cases seems to be based in northwest Arkansas. And of special concern are the close quarters of poultry processing plants. The outbreak this week has produced scores of infections among line employees and their relatives, many of them Marshallese immigrants.
2: Numbers prove the Marshallese population here in Northwest Arkansas has been hit hard by COVID-19. Sometimes it affects an entire family. According to Washington and Benton County coroners, as of today, 18 out of the 38 COVID-19-related deaths have been in the Marshallese community. For many communities in the U.S., grappling with the devastation of COVID was like solving a mystery. Why did one person end up on life support while another walked away unscathed? For the small diaspora community of Marshall Islanders, one of the hardest impacted ethnic groups in the U.S., there was no mystery.
3: My mom had went to Seattle for a very close family funeral, and then she had came back. But what she thought was a Blue was actually COVID. Marcina Langreen was 24 years
2: old when she contracted COVID in 2020. Marcina was born in Hawaii to Marshallese immigrants and moved with her family to Springdale, Arkansas as a teenager, where they joined the small but burgeoning Marshallese community that had sprung up around the readily available work in the nearby
3: Tyson's food processing plants. And so a couple of days go by, I'm being. I'm getting a sore throat and then I start getting headaches. And then the time that I know that I had COVID was when I lost my sense of taste. So my mom and I, we had to quarantine upstairs and my dad and my siblings were downstairs. A week goes by and then I start getting really, really weak. I lay in bed probably like 22 hours out of the day. Like I had no energy to move. Everything that I ate came back out. I was puking every single day. And then the scariest moment was when I started losing breath. And it was at that point where I told myself like, okay, this is not normal. Just to get up from the bed and you're like completely out of breath. I need to go to the hospital. Later studies would show
2: that Marcina's experience was all too common within her community. A CDC report found that Marshallese patients were nearly 100 times more likely to be hospitalized
3: with COVID-19 than the national average. I didn't want my dad to take me because I was afraid that I would pass it on to him. And so I had to call 911. The ambulance came, and they checked my oxygen level and it was supposed to be in the 90% range. I was actually at 19%. They said that if I had gone another day, like it probably would have been very, very bad. And so I went to the hospital and I was in the COVID unit. I was there for four days. All told, Marcina
2: spent nearly two months battling COVID, including two weeks on supplemental oxygen after her hospital stay. While she survived her frightening episode with COVID-19,
3: many in her community did not. It was terrifying to see that happening in real time. And then hearing that, going on the news every single night, one Marshallese person has passed away. Two Marshallese people has passed away. And then that number just, kept increasing as the days went on. It was to the point that we had drive-by funerals every single day. In the Marshallese culture, with funerals, we would have a week-long... I don't know how they say it in English. Is it awake? Yeah, so the awake, it would be like a week-long thing and having to transition from the week-long to just have drive-by funerals was just... It was devastating. It was hard. I, myself, lost about 18 family members and friends. Emotionally speaking, I didn't know how to process it. Like, I thought I would cry every single time, but I think I was just so shocked that it was happening at such a fast rate that I couldn't emotionally do anything else. In Northwest Arkansas, Marshallese
2: people make up about 2% of the total population. Yet during the first year of the pandemic, they would account for almost 20% of all COVID cases, and 38% of the deaths. Similar numbers would be reported from Marshallese communities in Hawaii and Washington state. The high numbers employed in the local poultry processing plants was often cited as the reason for this disparity, but the Marshallese knew that there was another cause behind why their community was uniquely vulnerable
3: to this global pandemic. To those who are not really familiar with it, they'll just be like, oh, because they had you know, other issues, that's why they passed away. But the major problems that we had, they're related to the after effects of nuclear testing.
2: i Lisa Perry and you're listening to At The Brink, a podcast about the dangers of nuclear weapons and the stories of those fighting to protect us. If you were to point at a map of Arkansas and move your finger southwest through the deserts beyond the California coastline past the sunny isles of Hawaii and keep heading further into the vast stretches of the open Pacific Ocean, about halfway before you hit the Philippines, you would find the Marshall Islands a small, remote nation comprised of over 1,000 different islands and coral atolls. Today, of the roughly 60,000 Marshallese people in the world, more than half no longer live in the islands. Of those who've emigrated, the majority live in the United States. And most of those live in, of all places, northwest Arkansas, in particular, the town of Springdale. In 2020, COVID-19 hit this migrant community like a tsunami, News coverage of the situation pointed to a myriad of risk factors that made these Pacific Islanders more susceptible to COVID, including the large numbers of Marshallese who worked in the local poultry processing plants, limited access to health care, and high rates of health issues like diabetes and hypertension. But these vulnerabilities are in actuality the ripple effect of a much larger wave that descended upon the Marshallese people decades earlier in their island home. In this episode we'll look at how the US came to test nuclear weapons in the Marshall Islands and managed to contaminate not just their homeland, but also their culture, their diet, their health, their language, and their very way of life. This is a story of how nuclear weapons have rewritten the history of an entire people.
4: Have you ever dreamed of living an idyllic existence under the waving coconut palms of a remote South Sea island? Of course you have for ever since the onerous burden of civilization first began pressing its crown of thorns on the brow of romantic mankind. Who has not wistfully envisioned a trip across the languorous Pacific to find a tiny, lovely, lost coral island, to abandon forever the rigors of organized society, to loaf and sleep and fish and swim lazily, peacefully, and happily on the bounty of a glorious tropical nature?
2: Before the West came in contact with them, the people of the Marshall Islands had lived in delicate balance with their small island paradise for thousands of years. Historically, the islands were known by the inhabitants as jolet Gen an meaning gifts from God. Glenn Alkale, an American professor of anthropology and founder of the organization Atomic Atolls, explains the unique history of life in the Marshalls. Glenn Alclay's relationship with the people of the Marshall Islands began in 1975 when he first traveled to the islands as part of his tour with the Peace Corps. From that experience, Glenn would go on to learn the Marshallese language and become an advocate for the Marshallese people.
5: Historically, we think the Marshallese arrived to these islands around 2,000 years before the present. These islands, uh, they're not actually islands. These are what are called coral atolls. So they're built upon extinct Submerged volcanoes, millions of years old. So geologically, they're very precarious. I can't imagine anywhere else on planet Earth where land is more precious or valuable than in a country where their biggest islands are 15 feet above sea level and one square mile in size. So land is everything to the Marshallese. They even have a phrase, they say a Marshallese without land is no Marshallese at all. 2,000 years successfully living on these little obscure pieces of coral. It's an incredible testament to the human survival spirit and adaptability.
2: Although life in the islands looks very different today, for those who call the Marshalls home, it is still paradise. And that remains true for those who were born there, but now live in the United States. Eldon Alec is the Consulate General for the Marshall Islands in Arkansas.
6: My name is Eldon Alec. I was born in Jenowicz, Marshall Islands, July 14, 1964. Growing up on the island was very, very fun. It's like, whole Island was like the playground. I knew everybody. I knew all the kids from one end of the island to the other end. And my friends, the kids that are like my neighbors, every every morning we'd get up and we'd meet somewhere and we'd figure out, hey, what are we going to do today? Not just in our village, but we'd go, like, two villages over. And we'd go there and we'd play over there, and if it's lunchtime, we'll just eat over there with those people. And those people over there will say, Hey, boys, you guys come go and eat. And, like, everybody's family.
2: Carlness Jerry also spent her formative years in the islands. Today, she lives in Springdale, where she works at the Marshallese Educational Initiative an organization that works to support the Marshallese community in Arkansas and advocates for a greater awareness of the legacy of nuclear testing in the Marshalls.
7: I was born and raised in Major the capital city of the Marshall Islands. My home was my playground. You know, when your family teach you how to live life, how to go fishing and go climb a breadfruit tree or coconut tree and swimming.
2: Marcina Langreen, who we heard from at the top of the show, was born in the U.S. But when she finally visited the Marshall Islands for the first time at the age of 27, it
3: felt like a homecoming. I've always assumed that, oh, well, Arkansas will always be my home. But when I got to the Marshall Islands and experiencing the island life and being connected with my family and listening to stories from the elders, I just said to myself, Wow, I get it now. I get why people say, once you step foot on the Marshall Islands, you will never want to leave. The
2: recollections of those who left the islands are reminiscent of a fairy tale. Remote Eden. Close-knit families and a robust community. Sustainable agricultural practices passed down through generations. But in 1946, a snake had entered their garden.
1: Out of Washington comes the story of Operation Crossroads. The Special Committee on Atomic Energy checks final plans for the forthcoming atom bomb tests
4: at sea. The site of the test will be Bikini Atoll and the Marshalls Group. In
2: 1944, when the United States first came to the Marshall Islands, they were hailed as liberators from a brutal imperialist Japanese occupation. After World War II, the newly formed United Nations decided, without input from the Marshallese people, that the Marshalls would be designated as a UN protectorate administered by the United States. But protection is not exactly what the US had in mind for the Marshalls. Anthropologist Glenn Alcalay again.
5: It's a very fine-sounding agreement that we signed. The problem was it was signed a year after we had already started testing in the Marshall Islands at Bikini. So when we signed this agreement not to injure the health or the environment of the Marshall East, we'd already done that.
2: The first nuclear tests conducted in the Marshall Islands occurred quickly after the end of World War II, as the United States was keen to publicly demonstrate its newly acquired nuclear capabilities on the world stage in the face of the rising power of the Soviet Union. By 1951, the U.S. was developing a new type of nuclear weapon, nicknamed the super, or what we now know as the hydrogen bomb. These thermonuclear weapons held hundreds of times the explosive force of the early atomic bombs. And therefore, it was determined by those in power that they were too dangerous to test at the main testing site in Nevada. And so, the Pacific Proving Grounds became the only location considered to be remote enough for the U.S. to test the deadliest weapon on Earth. Today, all American nuclear weapons in our arsenal use thermonuclear warheads like those that were tested in the Marshalls. What happened to the Marshallese is the best representation of the possible impacts of a modern nuclear attack. So
5: beginning in 1946, we tested 67 atomic and hydrogen bombs at Bikini and Eniwetok Atolls from 1946 to 1958. But these bombs were huge. It's estimated that if you actually were to, you know, divide them out over the 12 years, imagine... 1.6 1.6 Hiroshima atomic bombs being exploded every day for 12 years. That's how big the megatonnage was at Bikini and Eniwetok. we talk. That's what we did to the Marshallese.
2: Like the atomic veterans and American downwinders who were exposed to radiation from testing in Nevada and New Mexico, the Marshallese people similarly suffered from a disturbing pattern of cancers and lymphomas in addition to rampant thyroid dysfunction but the monumentally larger scale of the thermonuclear detonations conducted in the Marshalls led to an equally monumental impact on the Marshallese people, far beyond the scope of what was experienced in the continental United States. The most damaging test ever conducted in the Marshalls was the infamous Castle Bravo test in 1954, a bomb 250 times more powerful than the largest atmospheric test ever conducted in the U.S.,
1: March 1, 1954, they call it the Day of Two Sons out here.
2: That's Jack Needenthal, another American who, like Glenn, fell in love with the Marshall Islands and the Marshallese people during his time in the Peace Corps. In fact, Jack loved his time in the islands so much, he decided to never leave. Today, Jack lives in Madro, the capital of the Marshalls, with his Bikini Islander wife and their five children, where he currently serves as the Secretary of Health for the Republic of the Marshall Islands.
1: This Bravo shot, 15 megatons, you know, a thousand times greater than Hiroshima or Nagasaki, you have to put it in perspective, takes three islands in bikini, vaporizes them, sends them 100,000 feet into the air, in this huge, highly radioactive cloud, and it drifts over onto the Marshall Island Bears living in Rongolap and mutrik and some of the other Western atolls, and it snows. And the kids start playing in this stuff. And within no time at all, they start getting radiation burns. What happens is your hair starts falling out, your skin starts to peel off. So after that, you would think, okay, we had this big accident, this horrible thing. Gee, maybe we should slow down or stop, but the testing of hydrogen bombs went on for four more years.
2: H-bomb tests exposed the Marshallese to some of the highest doses of radiation ever experienced by any population in the world. Dr. Sheldon Ricklin, a Marshallese physician and medical researcher now based in Arkansas, describes some of the horrifying health consequences suffered by many across the islands in the years that followed.
8: People losing their hair, kids coming in and they with eat upwards around their skin. Folks who actually had what they would call jellyfish babies or babies that were born with a missing skull or conception products that looked like grapes. Those kind of things. You know, those are the immediate and sometimes even chronic conditions that even some of the folks from the different angles are still giving birth to these unfortunate things that we see. But, you know, radiation affects the body in all different ways and not just physically, but also mentally and spiritual and of course, culturally.
2: The very first consequence of U.S. nuclear testing on the Marshallese actually occurred before any detonation, with the displacement of the people of Bikini.
4: Yes, life is simple and beautiful on Bikini Atoll. Until today, February 3rd, 1946, will the people of Bikini abandon their paradise so that the United States can use it for a certain experiment with the fantastically incredible thing called the atomic bomb.
2: Because the U.S. Navy wanted to use the Bikini Atoll as the location for their nuclear tests, they first needed the residents of Bikini to agree to leave their homeland.
4: And after long conferences, it is to King Judah in public meeting that Commodore Wyatt puts the direct question.
5: All right now, James, will you tell them that the United States government now wants to attempt to turn this great destructive force into something good for mankind... And that these experiments here at Bikini are the first step in that
4: direction.
2: Although in the film, the Bikinian King Judah appears to agree to the Commodore's request to leave their atoll, if you understand Marshallese culture, you would know that this compliance was not so straightforward, as Jack Neenthal explains.
1: That Commodore says, would you be willing to go for the good of mankind and to end all world wars and all these flowery things... And Judah, the leader of the Kenyans, just kept standing up and saying in Marshallese, Militinje, Drogito, being honest. And what that translates into it is, everything's in the hands of God. In a non-confrontational society, if I asked somebody to do something and they responded to me and said, everything's in the hands of God, that's a pretty ominous answer. It's something they probably don't want me to do. But the Americans... They did 26 takes of this over and over and over again, trying to get Judah to say something different. And he just stuck to that.
5: Destructive force into something good for mankind. Something good for mankind. Something good for mankind.
1: It really frustrated the Commodore. And on the last cut, the Commodore dusts off his pants and he says, well... Everything being being in
0: God's hands, it must be good.
1: These were the conquerors of the universe. And they're asking us, would you be willing to go? It's like they're asking us, but it's like we never felt like we had a choice. All these old men would say it was kind of this show that was put on for their own people. But for us, it was like we didn't have a choice.
2: For this tiny island nation, Glenn emphasizes that this so-called request was, in reality, a command.
5: It was such an asymmetrical relationship. The Marshallese, what could they do? They said, you want our islands? Okay, you, you can have our islands. They didn't even put up a fight because there was no fight. It was so asymmetrical and uneven.
2: A week before the first detonation, native Bikinians were evacuated to an uninhabited island in a different atoll with promises that they would be able to return once testing was completed. But having to say goodbye to their ancestral homeland was just the beginning of their struggles. The U.S. military failed to grasp the delicate balance that had been struck by this resilient community living among these tiny atoll islands for thousands of years, believing that they could simply be moved elsewhere without a problem. As Glenn Alcalay explains, survival in the remote marshals requires more than just the land under your feet.
5: There's something called carrying capacity, you know, the ability of a piece of land to sustain a permanent population. So many of the islands in the Marshalls have been permanently uninhabited because they could not carry a permanent population. Well, that's where these relocated people were sent to. So they were sent from their pristine islands that they adored to less desirable islands where they suffered.
2: The U.S. government was moving the Bikinians from one area that was about to be made toxic to another area that already was. Jack again.
1: So they moved the Bikinians to a place called Rongarik, which in Marshallese custom is a form of hell, because no one lived there. When you move people here in the Marshall Islands to somewhere where no one lived, there's usually a pretty good reason for it. Well, not at all, all the fish in the lagoon are toxic. They're poisonous fish, all of them. And they immediately have a hard time. They don't have enough food. They're eating out of one big giant iron pot every day, one meal a day. You know, the US is over there testing nuclear weapons. And these people are just starving.
2: Rongarik would be just the beginning of the many times that the people of Bikini, and later the people of Inuitok Atoll, would be displaced from their homelands and moved around like a terrible game of musical chairs. First to Rongarik, then Tolan, and then to Kili, a tiny island without a lagoon.
5: In 1975, on my way to serve my two years as a Peace Corps volunteer, we stopped at Kili, and I spent a few days there with the Bikini people. They'd been there several years. I said, uh, how do you like living here? And they would say, chicken Galabus, chicken Galabus," which literally means the prison. We're living in a prison. That's how they felt.
2: Moved to tiny islands with irradiated soil and no lagoons to fish in, the long-established subsistence lifestyle of the Marshallese collapsed. To make up for this loss of self-sufficiency, the United States began shipping food to the islands instead, leading to a drastic shift in the Marshallese diet that had significant and lasting effects on the health of the population. Dr. Ricklin explains some of the disastrous outcomes of this change.
8: In exchange to keep the people safe, what we were offered instead of these radioactive food sources in the islands was processed foods that were imported from the U.S. to the islands that comes in cans and stuff that are high in fat, high in preservatives. So if you replace the traditional Marshallese diet of fish, pandanas, and fruits, and all those healthy things with all these imported unhealthy foods, it's no wonder we have diabetes and hypertension and cholesterol and heart disease and all those kind of things. And if that's what your next generation of Marshallese that are exposed to growing up to them, that's the Marshallese diet. So you kind of replace the traditional healthy Marshallese diet with the modern unhealthy, quote unquote, Marshallese diet.
2: Benedict Madison serves as the executive director of the Marshallese Educational Initiative. Benedict argues that this situation had the broader effect of perpetuating American influence.
0: It's created this mindset of dependency on the U.S. specifically. By depending on the U.S. when it comes to food, we're also slowly killing ourselves. Our people lived into their 100 plus, but now you have Marshallese who are dying at a very young age.
2: Jack Niedenthal, as Marshallese Secretary of Health, has seen firsthand the devastation being wrought by these chronic conditions.
0: You have
1: this constellation of illnesses because of all this processed food you have diabetes you have high blood pressure obesity it's just really bad this has been going on for decades we have one of the highest if not the highest per capita diabetes rate in the world over half of our adult population has diabetes i had this group of nurse practitioners training on an outer island. I asked the one nurse practitioner, well, what percent of the adults have diabetes? She's just said, it's easier for me to say everybody. I mean, it's like, wow. Imagine what that does to your psyche and your sense of self-worth when you can't sustain life the way you once did with with a lot of pride. You know, that's, that's something that got really zapped out here is pride.
2: Unsurprisingly, despite the U.S. promises, most islands used for testing were never able to be re-inhabited, even after multi-year attempts at remediation that resulted in the radiological exposure of thousands of U.S. servicemen, as we detailed in the last episode. For the Marshallese to be permanently severed from their homes was traumatic. Dr. Sheldon Ricklin explains that for the Marshallese, the atoll you're from is part of who you are.
8: For the Marshallese, our culture is the land. We always introduce ourselves as somebody from this atoll, from this atoll, from this atoll, as somebody from this clan. And your clan is connected to the land that you grew up with or your ancestors identify with. So when you destroy an island off the face of the earth, or you stop folks from saying you cannot go and do what you're and sisters did on this island because it's not safe, because it's radioactive. You displace the culture of that aspect.
2: One way to understand how pervasive these changes were on Marshallese culture is captured in the new word they added to their language in the years that followed testing, explains anthropologist Glenn Alkali.
5: How do you put a price on on a culture The injury to Marshallese culture is just tremendous. The Marshallese actually did not have a word for suicide. It was so rare. They did not have a word for it. Now they do. It's called Lucas Bruin to commit suicide.
2: The dependency that the U.S. created because of nuclear testing and the subsequent cultural degradation would play out significantly in the decades that followed. But in the 80s, there was a major development that would forever alter the relationship between the U.S. and the Marshalls one that would have profound implications for the Marshallese people. In 1986, the U.S. and the Marshall Islands finally agreed on an arrangement that would replace the U.N. Protectorate.
5: They call it Compact of Pre-Association. The acronym is COFA, C-O-F-A. What the Compact does is it gives the Marshall Islanders a degree of sovereignty and autonomy.
2: With COFA, the Republic of the Marshall Islands finally gained sovereignty, but at a cost. The United States retained control of the missile base on Kwajalein, as well as all defense activities and exclusive access to large strategic swaths of the South Pacific Ocean. Importantly, the agreement also capped the amount of damages the U.S. was required to pay out to the Marshallese in compensation for testing nuclear weapons on their islands. At the same time, COFA allowed Marshallese citizens to now be able to live and work in the U.S. without a green card. This would set the stage for a wholesale migration of Marshallese to the United States, as Benedict Madison explains.
0: Right now, two-thirds of the Marshallese population in the world live outside of the Marshall Islands, the majority of them here in the United States.
2: Marshallese immigration has been propelled by many factors, but one significant driver of this dramatic exodus is directly related to the
7: lasting impact of the nuclear legacy,
2: explains Carlos Jerry.
7: If you asked any Marshallese why they're coming from the islands, it's for education and health. Our hospitals are not well-equipped and very limited on resources. And I think that it's one of the heartbreaking things. We see a lot of our elders coming here in the U.S. because they need health care, but they still have that thought of going back home. And so we move here, but our hearts are up.
2: In a dark irony, for a nation with the highest exposure to nuclear radiation in the world, there are no cancer treatment facilities in the Marshall Islands. So for many, although the United States is the reason for their cancer, it is also their only hope for treatment.
0: You know, there's no dialysis machine in the Marshall Islands. There is no oncologist. People have to move here to the States to seek better health care.
2: Although healthcare was the motivation for many to leave the islands, once the Marshallese were here, they still faced major barriers to healthcare access. One significant roadblock occurred in 1996 when they lost their eligibility for Medicaid after a new welfare reform bill was passed. Without government assistance, many were left to fend for themselves in the complicated and expensive U.S. medical insurance complex. Dr. Sheldon Bricklin has repeatedly seen how this has negatively affected his Marshallese patients.
8: You cannot just pay for insurance because you don't have enough money because you're trying to choose between putting food on the table or paying the rent or electric bill. Many of the folks were not seeking health care. You know, and primary care, you know, as a family physician, primary care is key.
2: Given the prevalence of chronic health conditions among Marshallese, the lack of access to regular preventative care has had a outsized impact, as many of these diseases have progressively damaging effects on health when not properly managed. Additionally, their status as a non-English-speaking minority group puts Marshallese immigrants at an even greater disadvantage.
8: And then you add the language barrier, because many of them don't speak English well. And to navigate the healthcare system, one of their first questions is, is there anybody there that speaks Marshallese that's going to help me? It's hard for them to be comfortable fully because at the same time, they don't trust non-Marshallese providers, right? Because of traumatic history that we've gone through, that we've been told many a times in the islands that this is for the good of mankind.
2: Today, this distrust continues to impact Marshallese immigrants and has led many to simply forgo medical care. All of these factors have led to a population that both suffers from chronic conditions and is also highly undertreated. It is this toxic combination, the cascading ripple effects of nuclear testing, that left this group particularly vulnerable when the new specter of COVID-19 reached Arkansas. New findings show that the Marshallese community is disproportionately impacted by this coronavirus crisis. Pacific Islanders were 4.5 times more likely to get and die from COVID 19 compared to other racial and
3: ethnic groups in the state.
2: The most dangerous pre existing conditions to have with COVID reads like a duplicate of the conditions that the Marshallese people have suffered due to the long chain of repercussions from nuclear testing diabetes, hypertension cancer, heart disease. Marshallese Consul General Eldon Alec explains how COVID was a wake-up call for many in the community.
6: I think the Marshallese were affected the most here in Arkansas. It's just exactly those underlying diseases that were caused of the nuclear testing. That's what we realized. What COVID has really revealed that, you know, we already knew that we are not healthy and we are sick, people.
2: When Marcina Lingreen was hospitalized with COVID in 2020, she was grateful to have health insurance through her job. But her mother, a Kofa immigrant who contracted COVID at the same time,
3: did not. I was terrified, so terrified. Even though I'm not feeling good myself, the first person that I was thinking about every day was my mom. I was like, oh my goodness, if she gets worse than me and she doesn't have insurance at this time, what are we gonna do? I was like, hey mom, I need you alive. You need to understand that you will go to the hospital if you do get worse than me. I ended up being in the hospital, which is good. I'd rather be me than my mom because I had the luxury of
7: having insurance.
2: Less than a month after Marcina was out of the hospital, she was back in the field working with the Marshallese community in Springdale to help them navigate the same nightmare that she herself had just undergone. When I came
3: out, when I got the hospital bill, just those four days, it racked up to $43,000. $43,000. But the first thought that came to mind was like, oh my goodness, what about all these families that don't have insurance? A lot of the Marshallese families were terrified to go to the hospital. The first thing that came to their mind was, I don't have insurance, who's gonna pay the hospital bill? Even though I don't feel well, I don't want to go to the hospital, so I'm gonna have the pastor pray for us. So that was an avenue that a lot of the Marshallese took was they would call, their pastors and they would have them, pray for them over the phone.
2: One ray of hope came with the passage of a bill in December of 2020 that finally corrected the oversight that restricted the Marshallese from accessing Medicaid. But for many, that help came too late.
3: Definitely a lot of mixed feelings. Excited because, wow, it's finally restored but angry because it took so long. I found that so mind-boggling. It took a whole pandemic for them to actually restore Medicaid for Marshallese.
2: While COVID has had a devastating impact around the world, for the Marshallese, who have been struggling to pay catch-up for the last 60 years, it was more than they were able to absorb. Most Marshallese families in Arkansas have lost at least one member to COVID-19. Some have lost dozens. While the peak of the pandemic has receded, the community continues to struggle in the aftermath of so many deaths, and many are coping with significant medical bills and funeral costs. This has created a different sort of epidemic issue, evictions. These Marshallese people, who lost their homeland because of US nuclear testing, were now once again homeless because of vulnerabilities directly linked to the destruction of their
3: islands. One of the families, they were in the ICU for a month. Their bill wrapped up to be more than 100 K, And it's sad to say, but to this day, the hospital, they're now serving them because of non payment So they're having to worry about court us, weird cost, and also that hospital, you know, so it's just, it's ongoing. The impact of American
2: nuclear testing in the Marshall Islands continues to ripple across the decades and around the globe, manifesting in both big and small ways in the lives of the Marshallese people. To Jack Niedenthal, this impact has left a permanent scar.
1: It's part of our history. It's part of what we are out here as Marshall Islanders, people who live here. It's part of what we are now. So that's never gonna go away. It's gonna be here as long as the radiation is, which is pretty much forever.
2: And yet even those who have escaped the radiation by immigrating to the US have found that few in their adopted home have any inkling of the toxic legacy America bestowed upon the Marshallese. Carlos Jerry explains that this lack of knowledge only adds insult to the injury.
7: Coming here and working in the school, I thought everybody knows about us and the nuclear stuff and why we're here, what is our relationship with the U.S. But even the educators didn't know anything about the Marshall Islands. It was really surprising and I was really mad and also confused because so I was thinking to myself, what do I have to teach you of what you've done to our country? You know, like, you're the Americans. You did this to me. <laughs> Why are you not knowing it? So it was it was really kind of not a good feeling, though.
2: To the Marshallese, this missing piece of history feels like a gaping hole. Eldon Alec expresses his frustration at this burden that was forced upon them and that they have been carrying alone
6: for far too long. You guys did that to us. Now, acknowledge it. Tell everybody that you're sorry. Tell the Marshallese. tell the world. Put it in your history books. It's a fact, put it in your history books that it happened. It's a tragedy that they don't know the history of our island.
2: Like many Marshallese, Benedict Madison believes that there is still much to be done by the United States to atone for their actions
0: in the Marshalls. I sometimes wish that our government did not sign the Compact of Free Association because by signing the document it to me feels like the U.S. downplayed the impact of nuclear testing on our islands and on our bodies. And rather than take full responsibility, they signed an agreement that wouldn't cost them too much. I see the compact as a band-aid and not a long-term solution to environmental health and cultural consequences that stems from nuclear weapons testing.
2: The governments of the United States and the Marshall Islands recently renegotiated COFA to extend for an additional 20 years and included a considerable amount of funding for government services. Marshallese activists were pushing for additional funding for nuclear testing compensation, but were ultimately unsuccessful. Despite his feelings about the US and the Compact of Free Association, as director of the Marshallese Educational Initiative, Benedict remains focused on how best to serve his community.
0: I'm reminded that I'm doing this work for my people and that it is important because we have yet to achieve nuclear justice. We're taking back our narrative, making sure that people really understand, you know, why are Marshallese here in the US? and understand these issues that we are dealing with every day. We're very strong, and we will continue to advocate for a nuclear-free world and a livable planet for all.
2: Although the Marshallese have yet to see justice, they refuse to simply be victims. Rather, theirs is a story of resilience and determination in the face of unimaginable power and one of the most poignant expressions of this resilience can be heard in their music.
6: Music is very important to Marshallese. Marshallese sings everywhere. I mean, we can gather in a place, and I could say, hey, everybody get up, and let's sing song, and we'll sing it, and we all can sing the same tune. Music is our life.
2: Among the many downstream consequences of nuclear testing, one of the more tragically poetic effects is the impact that it has on the voices of testing survivors. Radiation exposure commonly results in dysfunction of the thyroid, a gland located at the base of the throat. This dysfunction and subsequent treatment often results in permanent changes to the quality, pitch, and tone of a person's voice. Nuclear testing quite literally stole the voices of a people. In spite of this, some Marshallese have turned this loss into a way of reclaiming their narrative in the form of radiation protest songs. Listening to a Marshallese choir singing about the impact of testing, even as the effects of that damage can be heard in their voices, lends a unique resonance to their message. One such song, whose title is translated to mean No Longer Can I Stay, has been adopted as the official anthem of the Bikini Atoll, It talks about the turmoil and despair experienced by Bikinians who had to leave their island paradise. This song was sung on the floor of the Oregon State Legislature in order to lobby the state to allow Marshallese citizens to once again qualify for Medicaid. This tradition of speaking truth to power through song is now being embraced by the next generation of Marshallese, many of whom have come of age in the Marshallese diaspora. One such group of four Marshallese American high school students from Springdale, Arkansas, has taken their Marshallese heritage and love of music and blended it with their American sensibilities by forming a boy band called Mark Harmony.
9: What's so, up, you guys? We are Mark Harmony. we back at it again with another video. No, 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 hey, you no, hey, you no.
2: When Mark Harmony connected with Marcina Langreen at the Marshallese Educational Initiative, they discovered that there was an entire part of their history that they had never been taught in school.
3: When we said the nuclear legacy in the Marshall Islands, they were shocked, though. Nuclear legacy, what is that? So what they learned from members of our organization and talking to the community, talking to their family, that's what inspired them to write Oh Sweet Marshall Islands. It's a bittersweet song, singing about their
2: love for their native homeland while simultaneously shining a spotlight on its traumatic history. Many younger Marshallese, particularly those who have grown up in the diaspora, have had similar experiences to the members of Mark Harmony, with no knowledge of what was done to the islands or how the repercussions of testing continue to follow their community. But there's a line in the song that suggests a path forward, away from this chain reaction of harm. Oh, sweet Marshall Islands, we won't forget you and all the things that you've been through. Without the knowledge of the root of these issues... The Marshallese will never be able to heal from these wounds and be able to break this generational curse. We cannot turn back the clock on testing. But we can shine a light into the dark corners of our history and acknowledge U.S. culpability for the consequences of nuclear testing on the Marshallese people. We can listen and learn from those who know most intimately what the use of nuclear weapons really means.
9: Bombing, it was such a peaceful land. Filled with waters and kids playing in the sand. Now they're criticizing us all. Radiation made our bodies skinny and small. and small. But through it all, we stood tall. No. listen to the message. Oh, of sweet martial oh. sinking, got it sitting down, got us stinking, about the good times, about the bad times, about the sunshine reminiscing, 67 bombs dropped through the air, and we have to ask oh, if they sweep oh Marshall care. Island, you are my homeland, we won't forget you, and all things. I You're where we came from the one who made us into the people that we are um.
2: At the brink is made possible by the generous support of the Carnegie Corporation and the Nuclear Threat Initiative. Thanks to our many guests this episode, Glenn Alkale, Eldon Alec, Colness Jerry, Marcina Langreen, Benedict Madison, Jack Nienthal, and Dr. Sheldon Ricklin. Additional thanks goes to Autumn Bordner, April Brown, Barbara Rose Johnson, Ali Raj, Brian Cowden, Suzanne Rust, and Dr. Jessica Schwartz for their help with this episode and their critical work on Marshallese issues. A very special shout-out goes to Mark Harmony for allowing us to feature their song, Oh Sweet Marshall Islands. Check them out in a new documentary, Voices Rising, which chronicles their exploration of their Marshallese heritage. You can find more information about the work of the Marshallese Educational Initiative on our website, www.atthebrink.org. If you'd like to support the efforts of At The Brink, the biggest help you can provide is by rating and subscribing to the show and by sharing it with your friends. This episode was written by myself, David Perry, and Maggie Fisher. Production support was provided by Jeff Large and Maggie Fisher from Come Alive Creative. Isidore Nieves is our audio producer, and Ryan Hobler is our composer and audio engineer. Our production assistants this season were Maggie O'Brien and Catherine Leed. As always, thank you to our listeners. You're helping us to try and save the world, one podcast at a time. I'm Lisa Perry. Thanks for listening.